HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring the intersection between food, agriculture, and competition. Learn how a chicken raising contest in the 1940s led to the poultry industry we have today. And they were going to run a contest and try and develop what they would call the chicken of tomorrow. We'll also venture into the world of agricultural video games, where a new set of tractors is making a lot of fans happy. The biggest addition to 19 was the John Deere's. That's what everyone was hyped for. And we pay a visit to a group of Indian restaurants that aren't on the friendliest of terms. Usually they wait for my restaurant, but after a long wait, they go to next door or downstairs. But this is how they do business. They completely copy whatever we do. Embrace your competitive spirit and be the first to listen to new Meet and 3 episodes by subscribing now. That's Meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Mark Padungpat has written on Thai American foodways, Asian American suburbia, and is currently researching the history of Asian restaurant health inspections in the United States. We'll be chatting about the history of Asian migration to the suburbia, impact of wholly Asian-dominated public spaces, and whether these spaces ease or hinder assimilation. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me, Coral. So we're going to start really big. Um, what is Asia, and how has people who identify as Asian changed over time? Yeah, so so Asia, I think most people think about Asia as a ge- geographic region, right, a physical place. Um, and that geographic region encompasses uh, Asia and the Pacific, you know, over 40 Uh, 40-something countries, and it's a real place with real people, and the important thing that tends to get forgotten is that these people are incredibly diverse, uh, both in terms of cultures and histories, uh, cultural production, uh, topography, um, and extremely heterogeneous in terms of class and ethnic background, uh, economies, and political systems. So it's an incredibly diverse uh, geographic region, but it's also an idea and I'm not the first to say this. A number of scholars have said this, um, you know, for the past uh, 20, 30 years, right? It's a, actually the past uh, 30, 40 years uh, since Edward Said's uh, Orientalism. Uh, so it's an idea, and it's, all, it's been considered an idea 
since you know ancient Greece, and it is it exists in the imagination, in the Western imagination, as a foreign, mystical, exotic place. Uh, and this is what Said was getting at with Orientalism, um, but also like irrational, savage, uh, feminine, everything that the West was not, childlike, it was uncivilized. Um, and I think today it's seen still, I would argue, uh, in, in those terms, but also very much uh, in terms of a fascination. It, it's a source of inspiration for a lot of people in the, in the quote-unquote West, um, it's philosophical. In some ways, it could be a serum to uh, Western culture and degeneracy. Uh, and so it's a geographic region. It's an idea. Um, and we also can't forget that because it's an idea, it is also then a political relationship to the West, right? It's seen as inferior. It's seen as unequal uh, to the West. And it's been defined by colonialism and imperialism, war and militarism. So um, I think... When we think about Asia and the Pacific, it's all of those things. Mm -hmm. So let's continue with the historical context. Um, Can you talk a bit about the migration of Asians to the suburbs post-World War II and why the suburbs, why bypass urban environments entirely? Yeah, so so the history of Asian Americans uh, in suburbia uh, in the United States uh, after World War II, it has to start with the, um, the, the, the basic foundational um, background, and that is that suburbia was predominantly white spaces by design. Uh, so they were racially exclusive um, from the get-go. And so for Asian Americans, this entering into the suburbs after World War II uh, was not just a natural phenomenon, but it also reflected changes to uh, suburban policies. It reflected global geopolitics, uh, specifically the United States' relationship with Asia and the Pacific, and uh, you know, the United States needing uh, allies in order to expand capitalism abroad, uh, you know, built or established and established more relationships with Asia, Asian and Pacific countries, but also portrayed them more positively. And that had an impact on Asian Americans at home. And so those factors coupled with the 1965 Immigration Act, so a large number of Asian Americans coming to the United States, uh, the Civil Rights Movement, uh, Fair Housing Act, all of those things uh, worked in concert to make it possible for Asian Americans to enter into suburbia. Um, and I think the move from uh, the, the the move directly to the suburbs and bypassing our urban areas has a lot to do with the class dynamics of Asian America after 1965. You get this large class bifurcation uh, of uh, Asian America itself, uh, class, ethnic um, backgrounds um, becomes wildly heterogeneous and wildly diverse. Uh, and so those uh, Asian Americans who could afford to bypass, uh, uh, I guess, urban areas, urban cores, and this is what Wei Li talks about in Ethnoburbs um, and a number of other folks as well, um, is that they are able to purchase homes uh, in suburbia uh, and, you know, uh, build build lives there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I should back up a bit. I mean, it's 
by our conversation, it kind of sounds like it's been very easy for Asians to migrate to the suburbs. So (laughs) (laughs) can you talk a bit about how um, initially it wasn't so easy and it wasn't so Asian dominated? Um, My parents are in Irvine now and they were talking about how when they first moved, they were the first or it was really rare that they would run into another Asian. And now it's like completely it would be rare to run, run into someone that's not Asian. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, they're, you know, very much like uh, other folks of color who try to move, move into the suburbs. One of the main mechanisms uh, that was implemented in suburban uh, residential neighborhoods to keep people of color out were uh, racially restrictive covenants, which were deeds uh, or private um, statements in deeds that said you cannot sell to uh, quote unquote orientals, to Negroes, to um, basically any uh, non-white person. And so uh, Asian Americans you know, were excluded from suburbia uh, a lot in, in those ways. Uh, but then also after World War II, there were still um, you know, beliefs among uh, many white property owners, and Charlotte Brooks writes about this in her book, Scott Kurishige's uh, The Shifting Grounds of Race. Uh, he discusses this and explores this as well. Um, but it was incredibly difficult for Asian Americans to move in because they were still seen um, as uh, as foreigners, uh, even though they were friends abroad uh, within the United States. They were seen as still very much uh, unassimilable, uh, and so it was uh, difficult for them to to move in. And they had to fight to move in. And we we forget that history sometimes that uh, it wasn't just a natural thing that. Uh, all of a sudden they had the money and they were able to move in, but they had to fight. They had to, uh, to take it to the Supreme Court. Um, they had to, uh, you know, the, I think one of the first families or uh, uh, one, uh, among the first families in Los Angeles was an uh, Asian-American family who had to move in in the middle of the night because they purchased their home, which was under a restrictive covenant. And if anybody found out that they were going to move in, uh, they could have their home taken away from them uh, just like that. And so they had to move in in the middle of the night. So all kinds of things, um, all kinds of tactics and strategies that Asian Americans used. Uh, And you're absolutely right. It wasn't easy and it wasn't just a natural thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you write about the right to the suburb, which I believe is the riff on right to the city. And so how... Um, how would you explain the shift from, you know, Marie Callender's in a strip mall to like a boba place and an Asian bank, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, so that <coughs> that shift. So I guess I'll start just briefly with, um, you know, right to the suburb. And that's something that I'm still thinking through and that I was trying to think through in writing that that article. Um, and a right to the suburb is, you know, the it, it is a playoff. Uh, Henry Lafar's right to the city, um, which is you know, essentially this idea that uh, cities or idea or concept that uh, we want to develop and produce more inclusive cities uh, and spaces and that cities right now, because of capitalist production, uh, really value property rights over and property value over use value. So it values capital more than it does how people use that space. And so for me, I was thinking about, you know, can we apply that and borrowing here from Genevieve Carpio and Laura Polito uh, Clara Idasabel's uh, article, uh, Right to the Suburb, I was really thinking, like, does this framework apply? And for for me, you see Asian Americans uh, really transforming the places and spaces in suburbia. And the question really becomes, is this, are they establishing a right to the suburb? Are they establishing uh, a place for themselves in the suburbs? Are they merely reproducing uh, you know, the economic 
makeup or the uh, the, the oppressive structures um, that that so suburbia was uh, was built on, uh, and so I think that question obviously is is still up for uh, debate and up for uh, contestation. Uh, and you know, places like you know, you think about you know, you, you mentioned Marie Callender's and that transformation to like boba shops, and I think uh, Willow Lungamum's book Trespassers really does a great job of highlighting shopping malls and Asian malls and the kind of stores that, are, that we see today in <laughs> these quote-unquote Asian malls uh, as critical sites of that contestation where Asian Americans are expressing themselves uh, and expressing um, their cultural backgrounds as Asian Americans, but that that flies in the face of how people uh, normally think about suburbia and suburban space. Mm -hmm. Especially when so many of these malls are dominated by, um, like, all Thai or all Chinese signage, et cetera, et cetera. And it, that's kind of, um, I feel like the uninformed opinion of that would be um, this population is refusing to assimilate or... Um, exactly. Yeah, and so what What would then be the more nuanced uh, ex explanation of that? Yeah, I think the more nuanced explanation, it might even be a more nuanced approach, is who has a right to these spaces, uh, and I think that question is, it seems very simple, um, but I think that's the, that's a question that we need to, uh, we need to focus on who belongs and who has a right to these spaces. Is it people who have the money to be able to transform these spaces? And if so, then we're already seeing that with the establishment of these Asian businesses. Uh, is it about the demographics of the area? And if so, we're already seeing that with, <laughs> uh, the, the, the way that, Places like Irvine and Monterey Park, they already reflect, um, those shops already reflect the demographics of the neighborhood. And I think what we have to move beyond is this idea that there was, there was an old time, a longstanding white community that should have a right to say what these spaces look like when um, I think we have to be more expansive about who has a voice in saying what those spaces should look like and who they should serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so then what about the criticism of um, these places with, let's say, holy signage, uh, Chinese signage being exclusionary? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, uh, oh, so the idea that they, th that, that they're specifically for this ethnic group and that no one else is allowed in there? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's from what, you know, scholars like, again, uh, Willow's found, uh, Brian Chung is found, like, that's not true. Um, it might seem culturally shocking for some people, but it's not exclusionary in the sense that um, all, all people are welcome to shop in these places, and, all, and a lot of people do shop in these places. So, you know, Ranch 99 or 99 Ranch, uh, whatever you <laughs> uh, want <laughs> That's to a call whole it. other episode. Uh, yeah, that whole debate, <laughs> uh, you know, I call it 99 Ranch. Um, so places like like that, just, just to take it as an example, they're not exclusive to one particular group. They cater uh, to Asian Americans, but everybody is welcome there. And I think Leland Saito has written about this, uh, you know, in, in, in his book in the 1990s, one of the first books on uh, Asian American suburbanization that focused on Monterey Park. You know, what he found was that it's not so much exclusionary as it is just you know, the longstanding white suburbanites, mostly white suburbanites, uh, feeling like they were culturally irrelevant um, and that they didn't know how to deal with that. And uh, so they weren't being denied access to these places, but they couldn't understand the transformation that was happening. And so they read that as being, you know, as reading, they, they read that as them being excluded from 
uh, from the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so let's telescope a bit outwards and talk a bit about um, the idea of model minority. Um, just if you could give us a refresher on what that is and how that also works to reinforce divisions. Yeah, so the model minority stereotype um, or racialization is this idea, um, well, the model minority, just as a term, right, is uh, a group, a racial and ethnic minority that has surpassed uh, all other groups in terms of achievement and success, uh, including the dominant group. And it's applied and it's been, you know, Asian Americans have been constructed as the model minority um, who, you know, and, and those characteristics include, you know, putting your head down, not making waves, um, and specifically not asking for uh, any public assistance, any government handouts. And the thing that we often miss about the model minority myth is it's not just a stereotype of Asian Americans as proper, smart, nerdy, uh, they work hard, they don't, they, don't make way, they don't make ways. We miss the key point of it, and the key point of it is that um, this is used specifically to attack uh, the black community and black and brown people. Because mm-hmm. everything that's said about Asian Americans as a modern minority is really a point about African Americans and Latinos as, um, you know, as the ant- antithesis of that. And so it's really used to put down other groups and to say that they shouldn't be complaining. And this is why it gets constructed and it gains traction in the 1960s because African Americans are pushing for structural change. They're pushing for radical transformation. Uh, and uh, sociologists and scholars and newspaper uh, and journalists are then highlighting Asian Americans as a group that did not rely on those things. And so it's a direct relationship to other groups. And I think that's important to, to underline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but despite that, you write about this kind of romantic friendship or relationship between uh, the Latino, Black, and Asian communities because it's like we're bound or binding against, <laughs> I don't know, racial oppression. But um, <laughs> you also write that it's easy to tell, um, I'm quoting you, a uh, Japanese-American from the east or west side of L.A., depending on their clothing, whether they wear Latino clothing or like Latino appropriation clothing or Black-appropriated clothing. And so how does that not run the risk of being appropriative of the other cultures? Yeah, I think what we need, I guess my, it's, it's a great question. And, you know, the, the debate is, is raging on with, with no end in sight, cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the first step is, for me, is to distinguish between, is this, when people of color, quote unquote, appropriate from each other, is that different than when um, white people appropriate from people of color? And so I don't know if I would use the term appropriate. I do think Asian Americans have a privileged um, status within, uh, in terms of along the racial hierarchy within the United States. And so there is an unequal dynamic there in terms of Asian Americans borrowing from uh, Latinos or African Americans. Um, But I don't know if appropriation is necessarily the term that I would use. Mm -hmm. I think that um, even though Asian Americans do have a a privileged position as modern minorities, I think there's something else going on in terms of shared spaces, uh, shared histories um, that are very familiar in terms of uh, their history within the United States, even though obviously it's very, it's very different and it's unique. But I think there are some similarities um, between people of color that make appropriation or that label appropriation uh, a little bit misleading. 
uh, to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I ask that because um, as an Asian American kid growing up in the suburbs with other Asian Americans, um, a lot of the YouTubers we watched as kids um, kind of got their claim to fame appropriating or whatever you're explaining it as. Um, yeah. And, you know, I hadn't thought much of it until recently because it like, it just felt like honest and true to our experience. And so I was just wondering what your take would be on that. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely know what you're talking about. You know, I think Eddie Wong was charged for appropriating. I'm thinking of, personally, I'm thinking of Timothy De La Ghetto, who mm-hmm. grew up in Downey, who's a Thai American, um, has a very kind of black affect. Um, and again, I, I don't have, I don't think I have an answer for that, but I do think the conversation needs to be different and it should look different than when we talk about white appropriation of, um, of people of color. I think that, there are there are shared histories that need to be um, brought to bear in those conversations, um, and it's not to say that they're not problematic. I just think that it's a it's I just think it's different, um, and like you said, I think it reflects um, our experiences growing up in, in some ways. And uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll get back into the suburbs. All right. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning Alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Lisa Held, and I'm the host of The Farm Report here on HRN. The Farm Report is a show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Expect from the field insights as guests explore how producing fresh, delicious food relates to environmental and community sustainability, justice, and better health. You can find The Farm Report wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back. So let's um, circle back to our conversation about Asian Americans um, inhabiting the suburbs. And for those who were fortunate enough to buy a house in the suburbs, what um, is the suburban ideal and how did Asian Americans exert control over this ideal? Yeah, so suburban ideals. Obviously, I mean, I think uh, the suburban ideals are... Um, are diverse and there's not one suburban ideal. But I borrow here, I think one useful way to think about an Asian American suburban ideal uh, is to think about uh, George Lipsis's work on the white spatial imaginary and the black spatial imaginary. Um, and the white spatial imaginary that defines suburbia is, you know, uh, property values, property rights, um, and, and uh, uh, exchange value of property that that, that those things uh, define suburban space. Uh, it's not that all white people believe that, but that that, that has become associated with, uh, with suburbia. 
uh, in the black suburban imaginary is this idea of the suburbs, um, or the, the black spatial imaginary, sorry, is this idea of space where uh, it's, its use value is privileged. So it's how we use space. So it's not so much that um, you know, this building or this empty building uh, is seen as a, uh, a way to generate capital, but this empty building could be seen as a way to house people. Um, it's, it, and and the, pr- the priority there is how we end up using the space. And for me, the Asian American suburban ad- imaginary, we talk, I'm teaching the class right now on Asian Americans in Las Vegas, uh, and we were trying to figure that out, and we think that it kind of, at this point, it sort of fits in the middle because there are large numbers of Asian Americans who buy into this idea of suburbia being just a place where they can buy property, accrue value on property, uh, and maintain their property value so that they can send their kids to good schools um, and, uh, and, and and live kind of private lives. Uh, but then there are also other <laughs> other Asian Americans. Uh, take, for example, Thai immigrants in the 1980s. Uh, I wrote about this in, in my book where they viewed suburbia um, as a place where it wasn't the house that was the center of suburban life, but it was the community centers. Uh, such as the Thai temple. Uh, and so they would, you know, live in, in the suburbs, but they wouldn't l- spend all of their time at home uh, or in in private spaces. They would be out in public uh, spending their weekends at the temple, a very public sociability. Um, and so I think that's one way to try to figure out what, what we mean by Asian-American uh, suburban imaginary. Mm-hmm. And so you also talk about the invisiburb versus the ethnoburb versus the cosmoburb. And could you give... Um, key examples of each, so it's a bit easier to track. Yeah, so invisiburb, uh, a term uh, defined by Emily Scott and Whaley. So invisiburbs are suburbs where there are a large number of, and uh, in, in, I'll, I'll focus specifically on Asian Americans, so a large number of, say, Asian immigrants, but design-wise and th- in terms of design aesthetic, the way that a home looks uh, is it fits within the existing norm of suburbia. So you wouldn't tell, uh, and hence the term invisible, right? So it's invisible. You can't really tell that there's large numbers of Asian immigrants or Asian Americans living in uh, in that neighborhood. Um, Ethnoburb, which, uh, as I mentioned, is is a concept developed by uh, geographer Wei Li, is where ethnic expression is very prominent. And so... Uh, not just homes necessarily, but uh, shopping malls, shopping centers, you know, you look at banks, signage, as you mentioned. Uh, so all of those things are very, very um, uh, visible and very, very present. Uh, and then Cosmoburb, uh, this is where you think about the high-tech industry, places like Silicon Valley. Uh, Brian Chung is writing a, a great book on this right now where um, you can tell that it's uh, very much uh, upper upper middle class I'm thinking places like Palo Alto, um, and where the ethnic expression is muted as well, um, but you do see uh, what you see are more kind of upscale, high-end, if one could argue a kind of like global, cosmopolitan, crazy rich Asians (laughs) aesthetic. (laughs) Yeah, and so given your interest um, in the intersection between food culture and place and space, um, I was wondering if we could just run through a few uh, spaces and if you could discuss their impact role, maybe target audience, and yeah. 
Yeah, sure. Um, so just in terms of like neighborhoods or... Yeah, so I'll, I'll give a few examples. Um, so the easiest one, I guess, would be um, Asian grocery stores, and I think more so in line with your essay on um, Thai American foodways and what yeah. it really means to provide quote-unquote authentic ingredients to the consumer Thai and not. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, food spaces, uh, the, the best way to think about food spaces and, you know, thinking about grocery stores, restaurants, uh, these are uh, places that, uh, that make place for Asian Americans. This is how Asian Americans establish a place in both urban and, and suburban life. And grocery stores are incredibly important because um, they sustain uh, a community. And I wrote about this with the Bangkok market in East Hollywood. Uh, and so this, this search for authentic, genuine Southeast Asian ingredients um, actually then... Cr- the, the grocery store owner, uh, when he opened the grocery store, all of us, you know, there were very few Thai people in East Hollywood, but after he opens the grocery store uh, in 1972, like within the span of 10 years, you see a Thai community, uh, you see Thai people start to, to move into that neighborhood. And so the reason that's important is, one, for Thai people, this is where they go to, um, to procure food sometimes to, to eat food uh, if they sell food at these places. But it's really a way to kind of feel home and to alleviate the sense of disruption and dislocation that happens when you immigrate to a new country. But for the city itself, these grocery stores and these places, um, they are ways that immigrant communities establish themselves and um, are part of community development. Uh, And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, when we think about who immigrant communities and how do they make an impact on the cities that they live. And if you look at restaurants, if you look at grocery cities or uh, grocery stores, um, you know, these are people who are not necessarily, they may not be political activists. They may not be uh, involved in, uh, you know, all all kinds of like political causes, but they are shaping the city. They're shaping the identity of a city, and they're shaping the physical space uh, of the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so similar, as you mentioned, um, our restaurants, which um, I guess get, I hate to use the word, but get more and more authentic with time. Um, so how, how do those cater to those of that ethnicity as well as those who are not? Yeah, uh, yeah so I guess I, I sh- should also say that when I say authentic, it's, all, it's in quotes uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as well. Um, so restaurants, you know, for, um, you know, obviously they cater to uh, the ethnic population, but they're also these kind of contact zones uh, for people who are not of that particular group. And that's important because it in many ways becomes the, the primary site. And that's what I argue uh, in my book as well, right, is that when we think about where people are meeting uh, across racial and ethnic lines, that by the late 20th century, uh, they happen quite a bit in food spaces and in restaurants, and we need to take these spaces seriously uh, because this is where ideas get developed this, about other groups. This is where um, ideas get reinforced uh, about other groups. Uh, and so part of what restaurants then have to do uh, in order to cater to uh, people outside of the group uh, is, is really fascinating because then they have to sort of imagine what that 
what would be appealing about their group, about, say, Thai people, what would be appealing about Thai people uh, for non-Thai people. And that gets really messy because then you have to think uh, in terms of, you know, do we make this exotic? Uh, do we change the flavor and the taste of the dishes that we make? Um, and so all, all of those things um, are, are, are present and factors uh, in restaurants when you are trying to, to market to, to those outside of your group. Mm -hmm. Do you think those same issues are present in food festivals where it's more about, um, I guess, distinction and being your most authentic self? Yeah, I think so. Um, but you start to see it, it sort of depends because in the case of Thai food festivals at the Wat Thai um, in the 1980s, that was where you could get, quote unquote, most authentic um, Thai food. And it was catered specifically to the Thai community. But then when you think about food festivals, um, there are other kinds of food festivals, and I think we see them more now uh, in the present day, uh, where they're this kind of multicultural collection of, uh, <laughs> of global foods and foods around the world, where I think it might not be as uh, true or it, it might not be as... Um, I don't, I'm trying to avoid the word authentic. Uh, it might not be as familiar to uh, those within the group. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that, so those food festivals, I guess in, in short, I, I think food festivals um, can also, you know, they're not necessarily authentic spaces where you can get this, where you can get authentic food. Mm -hmm. And so to build on this yet again, um, I'm thinking now of Chinatown or like little Saigons or um, I don't even know what the little Koreatown, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, you call them ethnic theme parks. Can you explain why they are? Yeah, because I think cities have been very adept to marketing um, these spaces for the benefit of, um, of their own cities. And in terms of marking their cities as inclusive spaces, as welcoming spaces. And by default, they're not going to, uh, and I don't think we can expect them to, but they're not going to give a very rich, nuanced history of those communities because the goal here is to sell the community and to attract tourists. And so uh, I think that alone uh, prevents a more robust, complicated history, which is more useful in terms of thinking about how communities got there and why there are uh, Chinatowns or Koreatowns in the first place. Um, but instead, they're kind of marketed. I, I would say ethnic theme parks, another term I like is they're sort of Disney-fied versions of uh, Asian and Asian-American cultures that are palatable for tourists and, and consumers and non-threatening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, I then think they are still spaces that are inhabited and used by those who identify with that quote-unquote town. And so it's like it's hard to say the easy answer would just then be to get rid of spaces like this, right? Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. So I, I would never, and you know, I, I don't think I have said that we need to do, get rid of these spaces. Um, I think what the question becomes, you know, what 
role do the inhabitants play mm. um, in in creating these spaces, and what what agency and what power do they have in uh, in shaping how these spaces look? Do they can they control the narrative of these spaces, or are they simply relegated to well, we need to um, present the community story in this way uh, in order to uh, in order to uh, attract tourists uh, and in order to boom the local economy, uh, or is there another way that we can present our neighborhoods that are more complicated and more, and more nuanced? And mm-hmm. I think what it comes—it's not so much we need to eliminate them. Like I, I wouldn't advocate for eliminating Thai Town, uh, <laughs> but I think there's ways that Thai Town itself can think about, and and they have been, um, but thinking about how they can portray. Thai American history uh, in in more nuanced ways. Mm-hmm. I feel like Boba is the most innocent slash um, unassuming example of this. Like I feel like yeah. it um, it taught me along with other Americans what Boba affords in terms of socializing and gathering, etc. But it was presented like I I wouldn't really consider Boba to be part of my culture, even though it is. Like I think I was introduced to it along with other. Um, American people. So, how about you? How about your experience with boba and understanding of it? See, this is where my Asian Americanness gets uh, put on trial. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not that big of a boba fan. Yeah. Yeah. Neither but, am I. But it's there. But I. I think to your point. But I think it's because I grew up with Thai iced tea, mm. and mm-hmm. so it. That was my kind of. Thai, that was my link to my Thai, my, my ethnic identity, right? Mm. My Thai American mm-hmm. identity. And then when I saw Boba being put in the Thai IC, <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's weird. Uh, <laughs> that's not, uh, it's not really something that uh, I, I grew up with. Um, and so I think that's probably one of the reasons why I never kind of uh, got into, into the Boba scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's at a personal level, it's textural for me. It's mm-hmm. weird to eat and drink something simultaneously. <laughs> it's like an all-in-one meal. Yes. Um, yeah. So for our last few minutes, um, I'd love to hear about what you're talk or what you're researching currently. Um, the history of health inspections in the United States, which I realize is a huge topic. But if you could give like a, a brief spark notes into your book and why, yeah. what um, sparked that interest? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm working on a project right now. Yeah. That basically is looking at. Uh, how cities responded to shifting food cultures. And I'm diving in specifically by looking at, you know, how they regulated Asian restaurants in terms of food handling and whether or not it violated codes and how all of that linked to ideas about immigrantness, disease, um, foreignness, public health. And so there's been a lot written about uh, Asian and Latino immigrants uh, in term, in term, in relationship to public health, but I thought, well, maybe we could learn something new if we look at it through food and food culture, because I feel like that's where a lot of these ideas got reinforced, um, and they get reinforced in terms of how Asian Americans uh, or immigrant groups handle their food and then sell it to the public. So I think that was the initial idea, and the the uh, really quick example I can give here is uh, in 1982, uh, the state of California passed. Um, uh, the Chinese roast duck bill, 
which allowed, and uh, you know, I was shocked and surprised to discover this, but before 1982, Chinese restaurants couldn't hang Peking duck on their windows, which has become like the ubiquitous image of Chinese, uh, <laughs> Chinese restaurants in the United States. Um, but they couldn't do that because in order to get the, the duck skin crispy, you have to leave it out in room temperature, but that violated health codes. And so Chinese restaurant owners fought uh, and rallied and organized to... Uh, to get the duck exempt from existing health codes. And so that made me think about, well, what, go, you know, going back to this idea of, you know, Asia and Asia, what is Asia, what is the Pacific, um, and, and it being an idea, do those ideas about Asia and the Pacific as backwards, uncivilized, unclean, does that play out in restaurant health inspections mm-hmm. in terms of how they see, um, when they see Asian Americans cooking food, uh, if it violates health codes, does this become like, oh, this is linked to their culture? Um, so I have all of those kind of questions, and I, I wanted to do more research on how uh, how commonplace uh, that that was in terms of, you know, was the Chinese roast duck bill, uh, you know, are, are there other cases like that that we could then explore and examine to try to understand um, how Asian restaurants and ethnic restaurants, I think, more broadly, get become really synonymous with uh, dirty dining or dirty food practices. Mm-hmm. I think that's a perfectly uplifting slash bittersweet way to end our episode. Thank you so much <laughs> for joining me today, Mark. Yeah, no problem, Coral. Thank you. Thank oh you for God. having me. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.